You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd like to thank Movement Watches for their continued support of SpyCast. Join the movement today. So we're joined today by John Graham, who's a former Canadian ambassador whose postings in the Foreign Service and subsequently with international organizations took him to exotic, often uncomfortable, and sometimes remote parts of the world. Many assignments were in Latin America and the Caribbean, but ranged widely from Bosnia and Eastern Europe to the West Bank and Central Asia. In various times and places, he was High Commissioner for Guyana, Director General for the Caribbean and Central America, Ambassador to Venezuela and the Dominican Republic, First Head of the Unit for the Promotion of Democracy in the Organization of American States, international mediator in a major crisis in the Dominican Republic, and a senior elections officer immediately following the Bosnian War, leader of five election observation missions, and participant in over 30 total. He is a member of the Friends of the Inter-American Democratic Charter, which was founded by former U.S. President Jimmy Carter, and the former chair of the Canadian Foundation for the Americas. He is the author of Who's Man in Havana? Adventures from the Far Side of Diplomacy, which is an incredibly interesting and entertaining book, so we're very happy to have John Graham here. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Here My at pleasure. Spycast. So you spent a long career in diplomacy, but not exactly in many of the world's most posh destinations. Uh, you write in your book that you originally requested some of the A-list cities, London, Paris, Washington, but your government had other ideas. And your first posting was in what I consider a beautiful place, but in the 1950s may not have been, the Dominican Republic. What I found funny is when you were sent to the Dominican Republic, your head of HR at the uh, Canadian Foreign Ministry didn't even know how to pronounce the name of the city that you were being sent to. Can you talk a little bit about this? Because it doesn't seem like this is the safest time to be in the DR. I think you sort of, the person that you replaced was even worried for his life because of the political situation there in the Dominican Republic. Absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> he, had, uh, he had attended too many funerals of people who had been liquidated uh, by the Dominican government, the, the government that was totally controlled by um, the dictator uh, Generalissimo Trujillo, and it was it was quite extraordinary. The most um, savage, brutal, and efficient dictatorship in all of the Americas, um, more so even than than Castro's Cuba. 
you, you talk about the fact that uh, you really couldn't talk freely. It was everything in your embassy was bugged uh, from the floors to the ceiling. And even the staff of the embassy were all being recruited as spies by the secret police. Well, we thought that maybe one of them was. Okay. And there were bugs. Uh, how many bugs they put in our embassy, we don't know. Uh, that's a function of, of, of whether they thought the embassy was important or not. And they may not have. But there were, but that was the nature of the of the beast in the Dominican Republic in those days. Uh, the the secret police had the most uh, penetrating control of the population, the literate population, not not the peasants, not the campesinos, but uh, people with some education uh, were cowed uh, into submission by this government. And you even talk about the fact that it was so bad that you couldn't even write accurate reports back to Canada, which is really your job, right? To write, this is how the government is, because they would think you were nuts, because they think you were exaggerating the situation down there. Yes, that, that, that was bizarre. Uh, the, uh, uh, if, you, if you told it the way it was, um, people living in a normal society and, and communicating with other countries that are, are more or less normal would have thought that you'd been out in the sun too long. You even talk about that you did a little daydreaming about assassinating Trujillo yourself, that luckily you were talked back from the ledge by some of your uh, colleagues there. Well, that, that was <laughs> adolescent bravado, uh, and, uh, but it was, it was so horrible. Uh, and as described in the book, I, I went down there with a pistol because my, my boss in the foreign ministries asked me if I was armed. And I said, armed? What do you mean? And he said, well, when I go to a Latin American posting, I always have a revolver, and I empty the chamber into the rose bushes or whatever is in the backyard, so all the villains in the neighborhood know that I am armed and will stay away. So there I was. I had a pistol. I didn't really know how to use it. Um, so I had this adolescent... Uh, vision that maybe I would solve the problem because I could get up close to the dictator, right. diplomats could. It was that that uh, that dream uh, was blown away fairly early on. Well, it, it didn't take you, actually, because Trujillo would eventually be assassinated, not, not by you and well, perhaps maybe by the United States. So I think it's really interesting that you, you talk about how Trujillo was assassinated, but the Dominican Republic themselves didn't announce it what the United States did three hours before the official announcement of Trujillo's assassination. How did you perceive that as a member of the Canadian Foreign Service, that the Americans preempted the official announcement by three hours? Uh, that was uh, uh, Pierre Salinger, uh, who was with uh, the John Kennedy in Paris at the time, and it was a colossal goof. Uh, and it, 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 it signaled uh, to the Dominican government to the Trujillo family and to the secret police that uh, that the Americans must have been involved. Uh, and they were involved. Um, uh, there was no American actually pulled the trigger, but, but they helped furnish arms uh, to some of those who did. And it really didn't solve anything because eventually the Marines had to invade the DR in 1965. Well, they didn't really have to invade the DR. That was, I think that was a that was a big mistake by by President Johnson. 
who had assumed and, and his advisors told him, hey, it's you know, Castro's next door, uh, the Dominican Republic is very unstable, and there's a group in the Dominican Republic that are sympathetic to Castro. Uh, if we don't do something, uh, Castro is going to take over the country. Well, that was an exaggeration, and the invasion uh, was, in my view, I don't think everybody shares this view, but it was another mistake. In the spring of 1963, you were sent to Havana. And this is a conversation that might take a little while, but it's really, really interesting what happened there. Because this is not a normal diplomatic job. You weren't there just to chat with the Cubans and find out what's going on. You would actually end up being United States intelligence eyes and ears in Cuba. How did this play out? Can you, can you kind of walk us through how you became a de facto, I'm not going to say you were a member of the CIA, because you certainly weren't. You were a Canadian you know, a diplomat. But you were doing intel work for the United States. Well, it's <clears throat> I was um, cross-posted uh, to from the Dominican Republic to, to Cuba, and I thought, great, this is going to be a fascinating job. But it wasn't until I got to home base in Ottawa that they explained what it was all about. And then it was a big surprise, because uh, I was going to be doing, um, uh, well, it was clandestine monitoring of Soviet military, military equipment, uh, the, uh, the Soviet and Eastern European bloc ships that were coming in, offloading, onloading uh, equipment and, and troops. Um, that's what the job was. And, um, and it wasn't until I got to, to Langley for, for a few days of briefing that I, they really explained what, what was going on. But, um, it was, I was to go there as a member of the Canadian Embassy, but um, my tasking originated in Langley with the CIA. But it was a tasking that was, that was obviously laundered <laughs> through uh, the Canadian system, and there was a special cipher that we got in, um, uh, at our embassy in Havana, uh, with instructions about where they wanted me to go, map references, uh, and sorts of things they wanted me to look at. So uh, that's how it worked. Well, for those people that don't realize, the Cuban Missile Crisis ended, and Khrushchev agreed to UN inspections of the sites, but Castro would eventually not allow the UN in. So since the United States had no real assets on the ground, mainly because the Cuban counterintelligence was so effective, we really had no idea what was going on, so you really were one of the people providing the only information about what was happening inside on the ground. There was, well, um, Washington had a pretty good idea of a lot of the things that were happening. Um, there, were, uh, there were regular reconnaissance flights, and, and there were regular threats by the Cubans, especially by Castro, uh, to shoot down these reconnaissance flights. One of them during the missile crisis, in fact, mm -hmm. was shot down, and that brought the, the crisis to a boiling point at that time. So it, there was there was real anxiety uh, about that kind of thing. But um, what they, as you say, the the, um, uh, the CIA's own people or recruited people that were largely Cubans, um, who had been working for them, reporting to them had, for the most part, been rolled up by an increasingly efficient 
uh, Cuban counterintelligence system. And uh, so they had a lot of information from above ground, but they didn't have enough information at ground level. Right. So uh, that was my job. And, and obviously, I wasn't the only person doing yeah. this. There were, there were, the Americans have lots of friends, so there were others. Um, I was in communication with only with with the uh, with the agent of on, uh, only one other country, and we occasionally operated together. And you talk in the book. You call him Officer X. Yes, uh, you worked with him. Uh, but this is a professional intelligence officer, though, right? This wasn't. Indeed. This was and not, and not taking anything away from your skill set. You no, obviously no, did a good job. I was. This was a pro. I was an amateur yeah. intelligence officer. So one of the things I thought was interesting was that the CIA wanted you to take pictures of Soviet installations, which I thought was, I mean, in the book you make it very clear, you thought this was crazy as well, but it just comes across. You walking around taking pictures of Soviet military installations, Canadian or not, is something that's probably going to get you in some trouble. So you you solve this problem with, with some things you include in the book, some very, I would say, I, can't, I can barely draw a stick figure. So some of your sketches are dramatically better than what I could do. But that's how you solve this. You essentially go around drawing pictures of what you see inside well, Cuba. This, this did not go very over well uh, <laughs> with, with um, my briefers at, uh, at Langley. Uh, and they offered me this you know, a camera with you know, a lens that, <clears throat> that stretched. Uh, and I thought, my God. And I had, I, I had no warning that this was going to happen. Uh, so I thought about it, and I thought, gosh, you know, somebody lurking around a Soviet military installation uh, you know, with a with something that was obviously a, a camera with a uh, with a zoom lens, um, boy, it won't be very long before somebody picks me up and asks me all sorts of questions, and there will be repercussions, embarrassments. Mm -hmm. um, who knows? Uh, so I thought, but uh, the, right, no, thank you. I, I I won't do this, and they were not pleased, and they said, "My God, we need precision. We need to know what this stuff looks like." What are you going to do? And I said, I'm not going to draw you pictures. And their faces fell even further. <laughs> they thought, you know, who is this guy? And uh, he's been reading Graham Greene, right. uh, Who's Man in Havana. And, uh, Diagrams of Vacuum Cleaners. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, does cartoons of the insides of vacuum cleaners and sends them to MI6 in London and asks for a lot of money. Well, um, <clears throat> I did draw, and that's in fact what I did. Uh, I subsequently learned from somebody in the same service that I was uh, associating with that even at that time uh, the intelligence services had developed miniature cameras and uh, that, uh, that I might have been able to use and got away with it. But maybe they were still classified. Uh, uh, but I wasn't offered one of these, so uh, that decision never right. arose. Well, but if you had been caught with a miniature camera, there's no way to... to you could have said at least you were bird-watching with an old-fashioned big camera, but if you have some neat spy camera that developed by CIA, there's really no excuse whatsoever. I know it's impossible to kind of be perfect in knowledge about this, but do you, what do you think your impact of your operations in Cuba were? What, what do you think the CIA or whomever else was able to, to garner from this? Well, that's a, a, a very good question. Uh, it's, it's, was anything achieved by 
by all of this. Um, I found nothing spectacular. Uh, interesting things, uh, when I tracked down a convoy of, uh, of uh, surface-to-air missiles, SAM missiles moving around, um, I didn't send that back by diplomatic bag, I sent that back by classified telegram. But um, as I say, um, none of this was spectacular. Um, but what I did and what others like me were doing were um, answering a whole series of question marks about what sort of equipment Soviets still had on the ground, uh, to the extent possible, uh, some idea of the number of military assets they had, um, and um, as <coughs> there were, an answer was sent in for each question mark, um, it helped to give some reassurance right. to the people in Washington that the deal that had been worked out between John Kennedy and Nikita Khrushchev was holding. Right. It, it was it was meaningful. So that really was was uh, was what we did. Nervousness in Washington throughout that period. Well, not not just the missile crisis, but for for <clears throat> a year and a half, particularly after the missile crisis, was very high. Right. Uh, there was there was concern that um, uh, blindly had only after the missile crisis really learned about the uh, the short-range uh, missiles. These were 25 to 35-mile uh, range the Lunas, you're tactical taking, yeah. missiles, but they were nuclear-tipped. Um, they were called, one of the names was frogs. Right. Uh, so where are the frogs? Have, they, have the nuclear warheads been taken out? Um, <clears throat> have all the Aleutian bombers uh, been created and taken out? And then, of course, there was a, another whole very dangerous area that uh, I was you know, totally uh, uh, unequipped to do anything about, and that was the submarines. There were uh, Soviet submarines in the Atlantic uh, and in the, in the Caribbean area, and there are this subsequently, after the missile crisis, it was revealed just how close one of those submarine commanders right. came uh, to unlocking with the, all the keys that were necessary to unlock their, their missiles, press the button, and fire them. Mm -hmm. uh, there were potential flashpoints uh, uh, throughout this period, and they extended beyond the, the, the dramatic three weeks. Right. Well, I guess it would have been really problematic if you had found something spectacular, if you had found in the, hidden in the woods some MRBMs, that would have been a very interesting story. It's almost better that you just confirmed that there wasn't anything all that interesting. I would have sold find. more copies of the book. Yeah. <laughs> well, to whom, right? There would have been none of us left to, to read it. Well, so, absolutely. Yeah, so it's great that that worked out. I, I want to shift the to the, um, some of your operations later on. I'm, I'm using a spy term. Some of your postings later on. I think uh, the late 1970s, you were posted to Guyana. Uh, people might not know much about this. Uh, but it's a Cold War, and let's not say a hot spot, because it wasn't all that hot. Let's say it's a lukewarm spot of the Cold War. Uh, places that were not necessarily in one camp or another, the, the non-aligned. But this is also when uh, infamous man Jim Jones 
was in Guyana. Um, people don't know, uh, maybe they haven't heard his name, but you've certainly heard the term drink the Kool-Aid. Well, that's Jim Jones. Um, but this is, he's a cult leader. And what's interesting is you were there at the same time Russian intelligence was trying to figure out what to do with Jim Jones because they, they didn't want to bring him back to Russia. But you, you write in the book that they actually cultivated him because they wanted to know why an American cult leader was able to rebel against the American way of life. How could they exploit this? Can you talk a little bit about this perception? It's interesting that the Russians would kind of glom on to somebody so, so wacky. Primarily um, to embarrass the United States. Uh, Jim Jones was, was becoming restless in Jonestown, his compound off in the in the rainforest, off in the in the in the jungle, uh, and really isolated from what we might you know call vaguely civilization, um, and <clears throat> uh, with nine hundred up to a thousand people, mostly American, there some others were there, uh, captivated by by his charm, his vision, and uh, and increasingly destabilized by deliberate lack of sleep, uh, alarm bells going off in the middle of the night. But it was a, uh, it, he, he understood uh, the psychology of driving people closer to his goals and his goal eventually, because he was losing it, uh, was to mass suicide. But um, he thought he wasn't getting enough cooperation from government of Guyana, uh, and uh, there was a big Soviet embassy in Georgetown, uh, it was bigger even than the American embassy <laughs> in Georgetown, so it was, that was Cold War function. And uh, so he started to cultivate uh, the Soviet embassy, and the Soviet embassy started to cultivate him. But I got to know the Soviet ambassador. I mean, he wouldn't reveal everything that was going on, right. but it was quite clear that that, um, that they had absolutely no intention of ever bringing these people, and particularly this lunatic Jones, to the Soviet Union. They had no problems. They did not want Jones. But yet there was a lot of ammunition here for embarrassing the United States. Uh, so that's what happened. Really f focusing on almost psychological operations there, just finding ways to mess with our heads, which is a great segue because Guyana was also a place where there's an extraordinary story in her book about North Korean propaganda and your battle back and forth kind of inadvertently with the North Korean propagandists. Can you talk a little bit through that story? Because I think it's, it's one of the times in the book where I just started just laughing out loud and people were looking at me funny. Well, that, that was, uh, believe it or not, there were, you could have fun with the Cold War. <laughs> And uh, this was one of those bizarre occasions when you could. Um, diplomats spent a lot of time in waiting rooms for uh, in the different ministries, the different um, government departments of the Guyana government. Uh, uh, and uh, you're waiting for the minister to, to be free, so did you go in and, and, and talk to him about whatever it was. And there was usually a credenza that was piled high with... Uh, with propaganda of one kind or another. Some, some of it was Guyanese, but most of it was supplied by local embassies. But after a while, I noticed that 
at the top of every pile there was always there was there was the there was a portrait of the leader of the of North Korea a very distinctive looking guy and eventually I thought wow you know somebody must be doing this regularly assigned from the North Korean embassy to go to all of the raiding rooms in uh, for all of the government departments on a regular basis, maybe once or several times a week, to make sure that the North Korean propaganda was on the top. So, um, something I thought, well, just do something about this. So I would take the North Korean propaganda magazine and stuff it at the bottom of the pile. And then I would try to find something like Forbes <laughs> and put it on the top of the pile. And, you know, I did this for a while and, and, uh, it, um, I'm not sure if the North Koreans ever understood uh, you know, who was sabotaging <laughs> them, um, and but I, I suspect that uh, uh, they were concerned. I mean, that, that seems like something very trivial for us, but you can imagine for the North Koreans, that must have been a pretty big deal. I mean, uh, that must have uh, had a lot of uh, high-level ambassador conversations about What's happening to our propaganda? Is the CIA around here running around? Yeah, I, I think that those people um, uh, didn't always have the big picture, and uh, <laughs> the microscopic picture um, uh, became important for them. Movement Watches, spelled MVMT but pronounced movement, was founded on the belief that style shouldn't break the bank. The watchmaker's goal is to change the way consumers think about fashion by offering high-quality minimalist products at revolutionary prices. With over 500,000 watches sold to customers in over 160 countries around the world, Movement Watches has solidified itself as the world's fastest-growing watch company. Now, at this point, you might have already checked out their website or even joined the movement and bought yourself an awesome new watch, but it's that time again, the time when you can't watch TV for five minutes without being constantly reminded the holiday shopping season is here. Holiday shopping can be horrible, but thanks to movement watches, all that gift-giving anxiety can disappear with the press of a button. These watches make the perfect purchase for about anyone in your life, guy or girl. And remember, they start at only $95. So let's finish your holiday shopping and get a movement watch for someone on your list. With movement, you can skip the crowds and stand in crazy lines at the mall and find a gift they'll love at prices that beat the department stores. Classic design, quality construction, and stylized minimalism. And again, over 500,000 watches sold in over 160 countries. So you get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. The watch from Movement I have has a really clean design. It's beautiful but not gaudy, and it's a true eye-catcher. So now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's movementwatches.com slash spycast. Join the movement. Let me ask you a little bit about U.S. policy, because obviously the United States and Canada are very close. But the 1980s was not a time for a lot of U.S. policies that you and the Canadian government liked very much. There's the invasion of Grenada. There's the American support for Central American right-wing dictatorships and some of the death squads in El Salvador and other places. Can you talk a little bit about that tenuous, I mean, it's a very close relationship, obviously, between the United States and Canada. But how was that strained in the Central American region and in, in, in the Caribbean during the 1980s? 
the um, I think the, the the talk about the strains in the relationship. I think the strains maybe the the the, the strains um, were perhaps greatest at the time of um, of Grenada. Uh, uh, this was a Ronald Reagan decision. Uh, the uh, there had been a coup d'état in Grenada, uh, a left-wing government, an already left-wing government, uh, run by a man called called Bishop, who was a sort of soft Marxist, uh, had been taken over uh, by some people way off on the left who were, well, described in various ways, Marxist, Leninist, even Maoist. Uh, and they were a rough bunch. Uh, they assassinated uh, the Prime Minister Bishop. They assassinated uh, a number of his ministers. Uh, and alarm bells went off, especially in Washington. And uh, they thought, wow, this is you know, another, another part of, uh, of, of the Red Empire uh, is going to be established here. Uh, it's, it's going to have access. Uh, it's in the middle of a cluster of Caribbean islands, and the contagion right. may, may spread uh, through the Eastern Caribbean. This is not acceptable to the United States. Uh, we better do something about it. Well, I think one can understand that, that it wasn't acceptable to the United States. Uh, what they did, the, their manner of dealing with it, that's a whole other issue. Uh, but they, um, they, had, they, they cracked a very small nut with a sledgehammer. Right. Even, even the Operation Urgent Fury, it's like, might as well drop, drop the entire... United States military on an island. I get what Grenada is the size of South Florida, Miami. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's it's um, oh, what's the population of us? You know, a couple of hundred thousand. Right. Uh, it it's um, and there were I think there were three of these super aircraft carriers, <laughs> an enormous fleet, and there were oh, huge huge invasion force. Well. Um, our prime minister at that time was the father of our present prime minister, uh, Pierre Trudeau, and he and um, and Mr. Reagan did not have uh, a harmonious relationship. Um, uh, president Reagan saw Pierre Trudeau as being a little too far off to the left, right. a little too much of a kind of... Uh, Smart Alec, and uh, and <clears throat> Pierre Trudeau was was um, was very upset when the invasion of Grenada occurred, um, um, not just because it was this enormous military force uh, crushing this tiny island when there may have been a number of other ways of a, of accomplishing change. Uh, it was, uh, I think, more than anything else. It was, it was, um, his, his, his ego had been hurt because Reagan had not called him up and said, "This is what we're going to do. Right. It's a part of the world that that, that you have a big interest in. Um, uh, I'd like you to know uh, that we're doing it. Uh, I'm sorry if you don't like it, but this is what's happening." There was no such telephone call, no such conversation. Um, so that that was uh, one of the the reasons that really set off uh, uh, Mr. Trudeau, who I 
<clears throat> saw the following day. Uh, no, it was the same day as the invasion, um, and uh, he was he was not in a good mood at all. And uh, and his irritation with the United States made itself felt for some time, and of course that. The feeling ran the other way as well. Right. There had been other irritations. Uh, my goodness, they're there inevitably. Uh, you know, neighbors annoy each other. And this had occurred at the time of the missile crisis. Uh, and the prime minister at the time was a man called John Diefenbaker. And when Kennedy asked all the NATO powers, uh, when they went to what was the top DEFCON alert, uh, to come on board uh, and establish the same kind of alert for their own armed forces, uh, our prime minister at the time uh, said, well, I'm not so sure about this. He did not He did not have, he and, and, uh, and John Kennedy did not get along. Mm. Uh, so he delayed, I think, 24 or 36 hours before we went, well, to, to full alert. Right. In fact, what happened, it, it's sort of interesting, is this more Canadian story, that uh, the armed forces couldn't believe this. So surreptitiously, <laughs> the armed forces went to full alert anyway to offer full cooperation right. for the Americans at the outset of the missile crisis. But that, that was sort of these irritations occur between friendly governments right. from time to time. Let me actually skip ahead uh, a decade and a half or so and we'll talk about Bosnia, because this is something uh, that I have a lot of interest in. Uh, you and I actually were at Bosnia in the same time. I was there in the mid to late 1990s. Um, this is after you'd left government. You started working uh, for certain international organizations like the Organization of Security and Cooperation in Europe, monitoring elections. Would you think, and this is going to be a very directed question, we're not going to set up the whole universe of Bosnia, would you argue the priorities of the OSCE were a bit off. The idea of pushing for elections, pushing for democracy almost instantaneously in a country like Bosnia versus looking for like supplying basic goods and services. I, always, I was there in 98 and 99. This is four, almost five years after the end of hostilities. And there were whole areas where you couldn't live. The buildings were blown out, even the ones... Zvornik was a major town right on the Drina River, and there are still buildings with holes in them and bullet holes. People didn't have power. This is years after the Dayton Accords, and we was there under S4. And there's no basic services. How do you, why have elections if you're not going to actually be able to get people water and food and jobs and everything else? I know, I'm, I'm, I'm obviously preaching a little bit. Um, but you do seem to have some, some I'm not going to put words in your mouth, I'm going to let you do it yourself. You seem to have similar ideas about some of the problems in Bosnia during that time. Um, you and I are on the same wavelength. <laughs> um, there were major mistakes made. Um, one of them was driven by the U.S. elections. Um, President Clinton was up uh, for re-election. And uh, the American, there was huge American military involvement um, uh, in Bosnia, after, of course, a long period when all sorts of terrible things had happened. Well, there was an international involvement. There were a lot of Canadian troops there mm -hmm. as well. But, um, either <coughs> um, Bill Clinton or his advisors said that it would be very advantageous uh, for your election prospects if we could 
get the election in Bosnia out of the way before the election takes place. Uh, so word went out. Uh, the, the head of the OSCE in Bosnia at that time was a former American ambassador uh, who kept saying, well, no, I'm independent. <laughs> well, he, he received word that um, uh, you know, he should accelerate things. And the advisor says, "My God, you know, it's you know, we're just we're just emerging uh, from a terrible, bloody war, uh, and the bandits, the military, uh, oh, sorry, the, ba the they're, they're criminal groups right. uh, who are have gradually taken control of the major political parties, you know, whether it was Muslim Bosnian or or uh, uh, or the the." Um, uh, yeah, the Republic of Srpska, the Serbs, yeah, the, the Eastern the, Orthodox, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the Catholic Croats, right. or the or the uh, the Orthodox uh, mm -hmm. Serb party, um, uh, they were increasingly in the hands of some gangsters. Well, it happened that uh, because the gangsters were much better at fighting the war yeah. at the outset than were any of the civilian leaders and. Uh, they really didn't have much of a military. Uh, that was mostly the Serbs uh, uh, in in Serbia had the military. The Bosnians uh, did not. So um, this was uh, uh, there was a prospect of of establishing a democracy in short order uh, was non-existent. Right. I, I always see analogies to Iraq in Bosnia, not because of religion or anything else, just because the idea of you try to have elections without providing basic goods and services, it seems like a disaster waiting to happen, especially in countries, both of them are, where there's deep-seated animosities toward one another. I mean, people didn't quite, I mean, I was there with the United States military uh, because I knew the history. I, I was talking to other people. People didn't realize that this is not just, we don't like each other from 1992 to 1995. These are animosities that go back to the Battle of Kosovo in like 730 AD and the Crusades and, and, and things that the idea that we can solve this with an election a year after the war ends just seems to me absolutely idiotic. What, what, we, what we succeeded in doing, um, I guess sort of we, because I was part of the OSCE, but it was part of, and, and driven, as, as, uh, as we say, by American policy, um, was... Uh, to establish uh, the, the criminal gangs in power and to, and to uh, strengthen the, the ethnic base of each political party right. so that uh, the prospects of any kind of uh, reconciliation were in fact lowered by, by our policies. And uh, I was asked by big Canadian newspaper on the eve of the elections um, uh, what I thought was was going to happen uh, and I said oh this is for, for background only please and uh, they said oh yes yes and I said well it's like a game of snakes and ladders except that and this was the elections there except there are more snakes than there are ladders well that made the front page of our newspaper the following day <laughs> and, and my people in Sarajevo were not pleased but that's that's the way it was. 
Yeah, and, and it obviously hasn't gotten it's maybe even gotten dramatically worse today because Bosnia is now a conduit for uh, Islamic fundamentalists and moving weapons into Europe and it's really destabilization even more than it was before. Uh, even though S4 is still there, NATO is still there, their U.S. soldiers are still there, it, it's not like it's become a place to visit. There are certain areas that are nice. But no one's going to Sarajevo on vacation anytime soon. There's certainly better places to go. Yeah, the prospects are, are, are not good. Um, uh, the level of corruption has really not changed. And, uh, and, and that's, that's very serious. Um, I think you probably know more about what's happening now than I do. Perhaps. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's just not going well. Um, let's skip ahead a little bit more to talk about another dirty, sketchy uh, government, and that's in Ukraine. I don't mean today's government in Ukraine, because you were there during the election of Yanukovych, who is the now deposed uh, pre the, the buddy of Putin and the Kremlin, who is no longer, many would say thankfully, in charge of Ukraine. But when he was elected, you talk in the book about this is one of the most dirty, corrupt elections in history, perhaps. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the problems in considering that a free election? And one of the, I mean, one of the reasons the Ukrainian people rose up against him. Uh, we, there was tremendous euphoria. I mean, there was a series of elections at uh, the... Uh, the first election was so tainted, it, it, uh, it had been so manipulated by Yanukovych and his people uh, that the flags went up and the whistles were blown and there was, there was, there, there was another election. And it was the beginning of, of what became known as the Orange Revolution. And the Orange Revolution was extraordinarily impressive. I mean, it seemed to sort of rise out of the ground in the Ukraine. It was uh, with young people fundamentally with young people and saying, you know, this is just another dictatorship, this is corruption, uh, this manipulation is no longer acceptable in our country, we want it changed. And so leaders came forth representing the Orange Revolution and unfortunately in the course of time they proved themselves uh, not to be a stalwart Democrats uh, with the real basic interests of the country uh, at heart. And so um, they, they really misrepresented the Orange Revolution, so the Orange Revolution dissolved. Yeah. And, uh, and those problems have not gone away. Yeah, would you say Ukraine today is in any better shape than it was under Yanukovych? I mean, they're trying to lean to the West. They talk about NATO membership being an ultimate goal, uh, but it doesn't seem as though uh, their problems with government corruption have gone away. Uh, it, it may be that the whole idea of, of NATO membership may have been a mistake uh, by by the West, by the United States, by the, the NATO powers. And that's argue, argued, I think, fairly forcefully by, by a number of people that, that you, you'd like to get the Ukraine moving out of the Soviet orbit. Uh, you want Ukraine 
to be more prosperous, uh, you want the Ukraine to be genuinely a democratic state. Uh, certainly it would seem to help um, if, if it became part of the European Union. Uh, but, um, but NATO, no, this is, this is um, talk about bringing the Ukraine into NATO just rang uh, bells in the Kremlin right. and, uh, and precipitated some pretty strong Kremlin reactions. So uh, I'm not sure, uh, and this is not an area where I have a whole lot of expertise, um, but uh, again, I think this is an area that in retrospect we did not handle terribly well. Let me wrap this all the way back around to uh, the beginning of our conversation. We talked about Cuba because you spent time uh, as we talked about uh, knee deep in Cuban politics and the you know very tense time and the Canadian government hasn 't had fifty plus years of sanctions on the Cubans. The Canadian citizens have been able to go back and forth to Cuba for decades now. Well, for those of us here in the United States uh, we 're just starting to realize that uh, we have this this opportunity. It's because of the thaw, uh, whatever you, you want to call it. Uh, there are a lot of people from my hometown in Miami that are not particularly happy about this. But I wanted to ask you, as somebody that, number one, knows the area, has the background and the historical understanding, number two, somebody who hasn't been restricted like we have as Americans, as an outsider, to talk a little bit about what you perceive as the potential ramifications, benefits of the rapprochement between the United States and Cuba? Well, there are some benefits that, um, that we don't have yet. Uh, you still can't smoke Cuban cigars here. <laughs> uh, and, and, uh, and, and Congress is certainly, so far, we'll see what happens, um, as, as will not um, bring the embargo the, the, right. uh, to an end. And that's, that's one of, that it remains absolutely major problem for the Cubans and for uh, Cuban economic uh, development. Um, the rapprochement itself, initiated by President Obama, uh, was a very good thing. As he himself has said, uh, it was long, long overdue. Um, it <coughs> has, uh, I think, produced benefits for the United States. Um, certainly there's a uh, a, a better relationship, a working relationship uh, with with the Cuban government uh, that wasn't there before. It, it existed at some lower levels in in dealing with with drugs. Under uh, under the surface, there there had been cooperation from time to time between the United States and, and Cuba, but uh, there's much more now. The um, the other advantage uh, for the United States, I think, is that it has helped to change its image throughout the hemisphere, okay. uh, with particularly with Latin America. There has been an emotional uh, response uh, to, to Cuba throughout, not everyone in Latin America, but most of Latin America, uh, of sympathy to, to the revolution. Um, of sympathy to uh, to Castro, uh, which has never been shared by you know a long succession over half a century of, of American presidents and American and American governments, and and and, and that 
that I think has has changed the way in which uh, United States and U.S. foreign policy in the hemisphere uh, is viewed, and that's a good thing. Well, that's, we'll leave it at that because that's a really I, – I spent a lot of time thinking about Cuba and the relationships that have been developed because, again, I'm from South Florida. I grew up around Cuban exiles. I grew up around this part of American politics when it comes to do we get rid of the embargo? How do we deal with Cuba? And one of the arguments I had always made was that Castro had used the United States and the embargo and the bad relations as a boogeyman to constantly say, your problems are not due – to the government, they're due to America. America's the bad guy. But I never really expanded to think about the perception of other Latin American countries in their views toward the United States and how that's shaped that. So I appreciate that. That's, again, uh, for me, something very interesting to think about. We'd like to thank Movement Watches for their continued support of SpyCast. Remember, you can get 15% off today by going to movementwatches.com slash spycast. That's mvmtwatches.com slash spycast. So our guest today has been John Graham, former Canadian ambassador. He is the author of Who's Man in Havana? Adventures from the Far Side of Diplomacy, a book I highly recommend. This is not only interesting because you get to see a different side of how diplomacy works, not an American perspective, which we're very tied to in many ways, but also it's a great read. It's a really good book. It's, it's very funny, um, and you're an exceptional writer, so we appreciate you taking the time to come talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us on SpyCast. Every Tuesday, we'll give you the most interesting conversations with some of the most intriguing people in the world of intelligence. If you'd like to send us a comment or suggestion, you can email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Or tweet us at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-S-P-Y-C-A-S-T. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit institution. To help support future educational programming, please visit spymuseum.org and click on our Donate Now link at the top of the page. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey and share your feedback now.